Welcome back to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM. New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, one of our U.S. Senators, Chris Murphy, is really making our public national conversation tick with a new quest to tackle an epidemic that he's defining as an epidemic of loneliness. In some of our leading uh, journals in our country, he's arguing that this epidemic is underlying a lot of our main challenges from gun violence, depression, opioid use, online bullying. And uh, Chris is here to join us for a few minutes to tell us how he came across this crusade, how it factors into specific legislation that he's proposing with his colleagues in the U.S. Senate and where we go from here. Good afternoon, Senator Murphy. It's so nice to speak with you. Yeah, great to be with you, Paul. Thanks for having me. I know you're a busy guy. So how'd you come across this? Uh, how'd you make this decision that you were going to focus a lot of your time now, in addition to legislating and running for election now, to having us talk about what it means to have an epidemic of loneliness in our country and how we tackle it? Yeah, it's a big question because there's a lot of sort of uh, roots into this debate for me. Um, one of them is, um, you know, just an unmistakable crisis in this country. If you look at the number of teenagers that are feeling lonely or alone, the number of teenagers that are contemplating doing harm to themselves, uh, it's at real epidemic levels. Um, but you also see elevated le levels of loneliness amongst uh, adults uh, as well, especially adults who are living further away from population centers. Um, the second route in for me is as a parent. So I've got, you know, a teenager and a preteen and, you know, well, they're pretty healthy. I see, you know, a lot of their peers struggling uh, right now. And I think parents see this all over the country. The third route in for me is, you know, um, a, is, a, is a route connected to, you know, my desire to try to find a more functional political debate in this country. Um, when all of our conversations are about policy, a lot of times we very quickly retreat to our corners, our right corners, our left corners. I think it's a lot more um, constructive if we spend some time just talking about the way that we feel, right? Sort of having a metaphysical conversation in this country. Because if we do that, we'll find that the way that we're feeling on both the right and the left is strikingly similar, right? We're feeling alone and lonely often. That has nothing to do with your politics. Uh, we're feeling frustrated that we have less economic control, we're working harder and getting less. That exists on both sides of the debate. We're feeling kind of frustrated by the commodification of everything, right? The way that uh, Amazon and Google have, you know, just turned everything into a commodity and put a price on everything in our lives. Um, so I, I think all those feelings unite us. And if we spend some time just talking about that, then maybe it's easier for us to create a common political and policy agenda. So I've drilled down onto this issue of loneliness and aloneness, because in some ways I think it's kind of the most immediate crisis because it does lead to really unhealthy behavior. We could trace that back to the bowling alone by Robert Putnam, that people just don't go out of doing his activities in person. We switched it as a society to doing a lot more online community rather than in-person community. You write about that. How does a politician... In what some people consider the most soulless profession, I don't mean you, Chris, I just mean like, you know, I, I, I'm in politics too as a reporter, but, you know, usually we talk about these things in our synagogues or our homes or our barbecues. What is the utility in bringing this conversation to the fore in the U.S. Senate and in the work you do as a senator? Does it translate in the end to laws? Yeah, I mean, again, it's ultimately my job is to build coalitions 
so that you can pass laws that make the country better. And uh, as I said, I, I think by talking about the way that we feel, it's easier to build those coalitions. So it's not a coincidence that I started talking about this three or four months ago. And just yesterday, I introduced groundbreaking legislation with some really conservative Republicans designed to protect kids when they're on TikTok and Instagram and social media. Um, because I think when we talk about, hey, as parents, how do we feel? And all of a sudden we find that Tom Cotton and a really arch conservative and me, a pretty you know reliable progressive, we feel the same thing as parents. And so we say, well, what can we do about that? How can we better protect our kids online? And the legislation we introduced yesterday is the byproduct of that. So that's my job, right? Find coalitions. And I think I can do that by talking about the way that we feel. And I think I'm hearing you say, because I read your articles in The New Republic, The Atlantic, and interestingly in The Bulwark, which is sort of the uh, embers of the old weekly standard, the Never Trump or Conservatives, where you're trying to, to press the broader point. I'm thinking of Michael Lerner, you know, Rabbi Michael Lerner, and he was an advisor to Hillary Clinton about a decade ago, and he was trying to pursue the politics of meaning. Do you remember that phrase? It was this argument without some of the more updated reasons, and it didn't end up working. She felt he was kind of being a little self-promotional with it and cut the cord, but also it became hard in the political arena to press this kind of discussion. Looking in the past of when people who have had the job before you have tried to have us talk about what we're feeling as human beings and how we are connected or disconnect each other and find a common ground as a basis from which we can legislate, have you looked at all in periods of, of American history, political history, of why it might not have worked and what you can do differently this time? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good question. Um, I think there is always sort of the urgency uh, of trying to create division lines um, because you're trying to win the next election. You're trying to prove how different you are. Um, I'm not running for president. Um, I'm applying for another six-year term in the United States Senate. So maybe I have uh, the gift of being in a position to not worry as much um, about differentiating myself from Republicans. And maybe it hasn't worked in the past because we have kind of given up on this project of creating unlikely coalitions because we get so focused on um, creating up battle lines, creating battle lines for the next election. Um, so for me, this is you know, going to be a sustaining project. And I'm doing all sorts of outreach right now to conservative groups, often to groups that are socially conservative, but might align with me on economic issues or issues connected to social media regulation. Uh, and, you know, I'm doing that in the context of a coming re-election campaign, but I actually think people in Connecticut will sort of support my efforts to well, try. Well, I've kind of watched you do that since the beginning of your federal career when you first ran, uh, I guess it was eight years ago for, for the Senate. And I remember you talking at Yale and you're reaching out conservatives. You've been on Fox a lot. But you yeah. also spoke when you first got elected about how and immediately they get you in a room across the street from the Senate to start raising money, which is such a, for re-election, which is such a partisan process. How, and you know, from the beginning you were traveling with John McCain and doing the bipartisan thing. You did the gun control, bipartisan legislation. But you've also sort of been, in order to have a career, you've also been a fighter for things you believe in, how to navigate that. Have you looked back, I know you just said today you can swear off pack money. Have you looked back on your career to see ways that you've learned how to navigate that line so that you can be a force for both standing up for your own values and working with people disagree with you and getting past this really fundamental bipolarization or this polarization of our politics 
Yeah, and I just don't think it's a choice, right? And, and frankly, I think history is replete in the Senate of members who argued their case, who were sort of lions of the conservative or the progressive movement, but then sat down and did deals, right? Like, you know, Orrin Hatch, um, Ted Kennedy are great examples of that on the right and the left. Um, you know, I, yeah, I have changed some of my behaviors over the years. Um, I think I was probably a little bit more of an incendiary presence on social media when I started out on those platforms than I am today. I will still punch Republicans in the mouth when I think they're picking on gay kids or, you know, trying to bankrupt the country. But I also catch myself sometimes um, of more than I used to um, in, you know, communications I might send out that are just provocative for, you know, provocation's sake. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and I we've, we've all been there, Chris. Journalists do that, too. Yeah, I had a different right? so question about your use of social media, which is that I've actually always considered you, from the beginning of your career, someone who does try to appeal to people who disagree with them. And I've never really noticed your social media as being so incendiary. But what I did notice is that you were an early adopter. So when Michelle Obama spoke here at a rally in one of the elections, you were the first person who was doing live streams showing your phone. I don't know if you remember that day at Wilbercross yeah. High School. And I was thinking, boy, that guy's got someone on his staff who's really plugging them into what social media trends are. And it was important because you want to communicate with people where they're communicating. But now when I see your bill that says, let's keep kids off TikTok and social media till they're a little older, when you're writing, I thought quite convincingly in one of your articles I know it's true in my life about we're too much on that phone. I know when Sabbath comes, I'm a human being again because my phone goes off. So that's the other kind of question I asked about social media. You're going to have to continue to communicate. When you're pressing an end to loneliness, you're going to have to use the tools that are promoting loneliness to get there. How are you going to do that? You're not just going to print handbills that you're going to hand out to people. You're going to try to reach people. Yeah, listen, I, I, I want to be clear about what I'm suggesting here. I'm not, I'm not saying that kids shouldn't be on line. I'm saying they shouldn't be online without parental supervision. Yes, I think that young children under the age of 13 should not have social media accounts. Um, and we make all sorts of decisions about what young kids should and shouldn't do. And then for kids between 13 and 17, I'm just saying, make sure your parents are okay with it before you exist online. And then let's stop the social media companies when you're online in that age bracket from capturing all of your personal information and using it to feed you really unhealthy content. So I'm a believer in all these sites. I'm actually one of the few senators that still does my own Twitter feed. I'm one of the few senators on TikTok. So I believe in the power of these tools, but as a parent, I also think that there's an age appropriateness question here um, and that we should put some pressure on the companies when they are intersecting with kids to not collect all their data and use it to give them content that is not healthy. And this is not at all to disagree with anything you said, Chris. You also wrote about the way that we as adults are so glued to social media. Again, you have to use the tools to communicate to your constituents and try to affect the debate. But wouldn't you agree, at least based on what you wrote, and I'm saying this is someone who publishes an online newspaper, that being online so much is making us lonelier and less connected? And is there some way to deal? I don't know that that's really a political solution to that. But isn't that part of the roots you're looking at and why we're lonelier? No, oh, absolutely. I think for a long time, we thought that online connection was going to be just as fulfilling as in-person connection. And so, you know, our, our ability to find new communities and new people to connect with online was just going to be additive to what we were doing in person. I think, you know, 10 years into this social media experiment, we have learned that's actually not true, that there's actually something much less fulfilling and rewarding about online 
uh, connection. And that in fact, that um, community, that online community often drives us to polarization and to hate much more quickly then happens when we engage in person, right? We just see when you have to see another person as a human being and look in their eyes and feel them in the room and not hate them. You say online, especially when you can be anonymous online. So I think it's not a substitution for online, uh, for for in person um, uh, experience. And yeah, I think there's limited things the government can do. But one of the things the bill we introduced yesterday says is that for kids, you can't have social media companies delivering them purposely addicting algorithms so that the kid is addicted to the phone um, that we should we should have policies that promote kids having in-person experiences outside of them staring. and of course nothing's more important than kids you get patterns for life it's also true that the 18 or 20 year olds with the youtube algorithms get down that rabbit hole pretty quick to white nationalism and hate or, you know, on all sides of the divide. I'm wondering how much you're fighting against inevitable forces of history. So with generative AI, chat, you know, CBS chat and all that, we're moving to a part, even with the way we're talking about caring for older people through AI to kind of have online connections that you and I would agree aren't the same thing as human connections that make you lonelier. Are you fighting a little bit of a um, Sisyphean task here for people who aren't kids? It's going to be hard enough with kids. But aren't we, are we becoming even more connected to our devices, more connected to how AI is going to partner with us and doing everything from our life, from reading on our wrists how many steps we're taking to what our blood is every time to when we're going to communicate with some base that. Is that something you're thinking about at all as we're, as we're entering this new era of AI? No, all the time. I mean, I just had AI experts in my office yesterday trying to workshop what the response should be i'm listen i'm super worried about um ai and the 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 future of ai unregulated because this is something fundamentally new right um now you're talking about basic human functions like conversation creativity composition being replaced by machines that's different than machines doing a physical chore more efficient than humans can do it. There is something spiritual that we lose um, when we don't engage in conversation and we outsource that. I mean, just you know, leave you this, Microsoft's advertisement, their like video ad for ChatGPT suggests that one of the great ways to use ChatGPT is instead of composing the graduation speech for your kid yourself, just outsource that to a computer. Let a machine write your kid's graduation speech. There's something dystopian about that world in which we outsource our emotional expression to a machine. I don't think that's good for us as human beings. And we need to have a conversation in Congress about what steps we can take to try and to- And it sounds like your your wheelhouse there is gonna be the question of regulation, correct? That's yeah, I think where we the wanna make sure that we get the best of AI because there is real, great things that can come from the, those efficiencies without getting the worst of it. And uh, have you read some of the doomsday scenarios? I'm sure you have by some of the people who monitors have the AI. They believe that we're not the most efficient collection of atoms and that somehow it's going to be a HAL 2001 scenario where they're just going to wipe out the human race. I haven't quite walked that one through yet. I don't even know if that's something we can hold in our brains when we're dealing with everyday life. Have you thought anything about what that next step scenario is and what people say i'm not i'm not worried about ai becoming sentient sentient and taking over humanity but you know we are already in a world in which um you can copy somebody else's voice um pretty seamlessly and so you know just basic 
tasks of authentication, right? Knowing who you're talking to have all of a sudden become much more Well, difficult. deep fakes. I mean, when you look at the, your first campaign for Senate, when, you know, you got the hilarious, well, not hilarious at the time, the $50 million are just over the wall and make someone look like the worst human being who ever lived. Now they're going to be able, if this were that, if this were 10 years later when you had that campaign, there probably would have been videos of you doing some pretty horrible things you never did. You ready yeah, for no, that? So I just think those, those, that, that sort of answers the question of how you identify who you're talking to, who you're meeting with, who you're chatting with on the phone. And, you know, those are going to be difficult, difficult. Well, questions. I got to let you go. You're a busy guy. Yeah. Is it lonely being a senator and doing not this work? I'm, I'm surrounded by people all the time. That's not, that's, that's not an answer to the question, though. No, it's not. No, listen, this is not about, you know, this is not about me. I, I, I luckily have a job in which uh, I stay pretty uh, universally and constantly connected to human beings. Senator Chris Murphy, good luck on your uh, crusade to have us wrestle with our epidemic of loneliness. Good luck in Washington, and thanks for making time to chat with Dateline New Haven, WNHHF. Thanks, man. All right, take it easy. And thanks to Harry Joves for working the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free. From the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.